Pastor Hans come up, we're going to read um, scripture. If we can uh, all stand together, let's find our scripture passage today. I believe it's uh, John 20, 19 to 29. Okay, let's read. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, and they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, turn the time over to Pastor Hans. Good morning. For those of you who were here from over a year ago, and you have the Bibles that were handed out, the scripture journals, you might notice that there's very, very little left. And it's because we have come to the second to the last chapter. We have one more week in the book of John, and then we will be reviewing some of the big ideas that we've seen developed through this book. But we've come to a passage that if you think of the gospel of john as a sermon really what we've come to is the application because if you look at the tenor of the rest of the gospel it's know this understand this about me i am the bread of life i am the door of the sheep i am the good shepherd and now we've come to a place where jesus is sending his disciples and commissioning his disciples and since we've come to the application of the sermon and so as we come to this passage we see things coming to fruition everything that jesus has been teaching to his disciples through his ministry now results in the commands the commissions that we see through this passage and as we saw last week that first commission to the, perhaps we could call her the first missionary to go out, Mary, who was sent with the full message of the gospel. 
and to teach this gospel to the disciples. And it emphasizes the power of this word that has been given to us. And in particular, we see two great blessings in this passage that we have this morning, that we have just read, that God has given us in his word. And I hope that we will see together, as we go through this passage, the truth of that hymn, how great a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, has been laid for your faith in his excellent word. I pray that we will see these blessings that empower the people of God to go out with this message of the gospel to the world. And so let us pray that God's spirit would attend us as we come to his word this morning. Father God, as you spoke to your disciples so long ago, so also you speak to us today. Help us to see the truths of your word. Help us to see the ways that you have equipped and empowered your people to deliver this message of surpassing worth, of worth and power beyond anything else that is present in this universe. And Lord, may your people here at PCC be empowered by your word that your gospel might go out from weak and frail vessels with the kind of power that will transform this city, this community, this church. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is power in the Word of God. And there is such power in His Word that it equips us to withstand any and every obstacle and trial that comes upon us. Many of you may have heard this last week, the tragic news of the confirmation that the great Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias was found guilty by an independent investigation of abusing multiple women. How do we respond to a revelation like this? As a people who are striving to live for the honor and the glory of God, we grieve for those who were harmed in the course of this scandal. And we also take heed, knowing that we are all redeemed sinners. We are all still struggling against the power of sin and engaged in the fight against sin. But in terms of confidence in our faith, we should be completely unshaken. Because even if it was someone like Rami who helped us to see the truth of the Christian faith, our confidence, our faith, rests on a great reality. Not in the argument or opinion of any person, no matter how well-spoken or erudite they are. And in fact, when we understand the Word of God, we see that God knew all along that there would be people who would abuse the talents that they have, the positions of authority, they possess, and even their status 
in the church. And so where we saw last week, Mary sent to announce to the disciples that Jesus Christ had risen, that he was indeed the Messiah that God had sent. And we saw that God's ways are not the ways of men, and that he chose this woman to be the very first bearer of the message of the gospel. And now we come to another group that Jesus will empower to bring forth his gospel and to establish the great church. <laughs> and if this is the group that God sends, what I can say with confidence is that this church has the power to transform the world. Because God transforms the world through this group. And how is it that we see them on this day where Jesus has proclaimed his resurrection? Well, they're in a locked room, huddled together for fear of the Jews. We read in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What kind of people would we choose to accomplish a task of great importance to us? Well, the kind of people that we naturally choose would be people who are talented, skilled, capable, strong. We want the brightest and the strongest to accomplish our tasks. Who does Jesus choose? He chooses this group of dispirited disciples huddled together in a locked room. And we might dwell for a moment on why it is that they're huddled here in this locked room. Because the reason that they're cowering here becomes very important later on. They are cowering here because they are afraid of the Jewish authorities, because their leader, their teacher, their master, Jesus, has just been executed by the Roman authorities because of the opposition of the Jews, who found Jesus' teachings to be seditious, because Jesus had undermined their authorities. And so in order to stop Jesus, they had brought him before the Roman authorities and had him crucified. And so the disciples were concerned that if the authorities thought that they might further the teachings of Jesus, that perhaps the authorities would then come after them. And so the disciples were hiding for fear of these Jewish authorities. And now Jesus appears to this not-so-bold band of disciples. And he comes, and he stands among them, suddenly in this room where they have locked themselves away. And I want us to notice the order in which things are happening here. 
Because the next line that Jesus says is, peace be with you, and he shows them his hands and his side. And it is after they see his hands and his side that the disciples are glad to see him. And what is clear from this order is that until they see his hands and his side, they are not glad. They need assurance that he's not some kind of spirit, a ghost, who's perhaps passed through the walls and appeared to them. In other words, they need to see that Jesus is truly resurrected. That the same Jesus who was crucified, who received the nails in his hand and the spear in his side, is the one who also lives and stands before them. And so it is upon their recognition of the veracity, the truth of the resurrection that Jesus commissions these disciples. And that's why it's important to know why they're cowering here in this room. They're in this room for fear of the Jews, the Jewish authorities who might come after them. And the reason they're afraid is because if the authorities think that they might further the teachings of this Jesus, then the authorities might come after them and kill them. So what is it that Jesus commissions them to do? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. In a way, he's sending them into their worst fear. They're afraid because the Jews might come after them the same way that they came after Jesus. And Jesus now comes to them and tells them, I am sending you just as the Father sent me. And we know from history that that is exactly what will happen. And so what might the disciples have been thinking? Jesus, do you know why we're here in this locked room with the doors locked? Those holes in your hand that you just showed us, remember how you got them? That hole in your side. Um, I hope you remember. <laughs> because when you say, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you, uh, maybe we're not so keen on the same thing. But no, that's not what they're saying, right? And we see the consequence as we continue through our passage today of how the disciples then respond to Jesus. Now, as we look at this passage, I want you to notice something here about what is going on here that will build these disciples up. The kind of thing that is happening to the disciples to transform them from these fearful men hiding in a locked room to the kind of apostles who will one day bring about the transformation of the same Roman Empire that has crucified Jesus so that the emperor himself would be baptized. Their faith is based upon the supernatural, 
but their faith is not super rational. It's supernatural because by the natural operations of this universe, resurrection is not possible. If someone has died, they're dead. And so for Jesus to be alive again, there has to be an overturning of the natural operations of this universe. But their faith is rational. It is reasonable. Their faith is built on seeing a real man with a real body who died a real death who rose on the third day to a real life. And so there is a conjunction both of the supernatural power of God, but also the understanding and reason of the disciples. And so first we see that the disciples are built up and strengthened in faith based upon understanding based upon their knowledge, based upon what Jesus reveals to them. And the second thing we notice about this commission is that Jesus sets against the authorities of which these disciples are afraid, a greater authority. Because they're huddled here in this room for fear of what these earthly authorities might do to them in this physical realm. But as Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In other words, against this context of this earthly authority of which the disciples are afraid, there is a greater authority. The authority of God himself. The forgiveness or the holding of the punishment of sin. And so what John presents here is an opposing contrast between the fear of what might happen in this world to the reality and the surety of judgment in the next. And it is the overwhelming consequence, greater significance of these eternal realities that Jesus sets before the disciples to show them that there is a greater authority within them than is in the authority of this world. That is to empower and embolden these disciples to do his work. And I want to point out something else about Jesus, after he rises from the dead and appears to the disciples. And that is, do you notice that after his resurrection, we have no record of Jesus appearing to anyone other than his disciples? It is only to his disciples that Jesus appears. And in a way, that seems illogical, right? Because the authorities had crucified Jesus. And if Jesus now continues in that same ministry that he had been doing, only he does it now and says, look, see, they crucified me. Here's the holes in my hand. Here's the hole in my side. And I rose again. 
you'd think that that would be a pretty effective witness, right? But for some reason, God chooses not to work in that way. And instead, he sends these fearful followers of his. Why is it that he does this? Well, in a way, what I've just given you is a very earthly way of thinking. Because God is able to accomplish whatever he chooses to accomplish in whatever way that he wants. He can accomplish his will through an eight-year-old child just as well as he can through a professor of theology. We look at things way too practically. But if we are accomplishing things through our strength, then we can perhaps start to think that we are far too necessary and important. And that's the mentality that the world uses. If I'm important and talented and necessary, then I'm entitled. And we see that mentality with politicians, athletes, and sadly, even Christian leaders. But the reality is that what empowers Jesus' disciples is God himself. Why is it that these men who are so afraid can become the kind of power that will transform the Roman Empire and then transform the world? Because God dwells within his followers. If they have the power of God, as Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that they cannot do that could be done by Christ himself. And so God entrusts the gospel, the greatest power in all the universe, to his followers because he himself is the power of those who will yield themselves to him. And this leads us into the account of Thomas. And as we look now at the meeting with Thomas, we'll notice that there are quite a few similarities between these two accounts. And so as we look at Jesus' encounter with Thomas, we notice a number of similarities. Again, the disciples are in a locked room. Again, we see Jesus displaying the evidence of his pierced hands and side. And again, in the account, we see the assertion of divine authority. And finally, we see that command for evidence to lead into action. The difference in this passage that whereas the disciples had been incapacitated by fear, for Thomas, the primary issue is not fear, but doubt. He had lost his confidence in Jesus because Jesus had been killed at the hands of the Romans. And thus for Thomas, this demonstrated that Jesus was not the Messiah. And this was not a thought that was Thomas's alone. We know that uh, this was something that the disciples that Jesus encountered on the road to Emmaus also thought. And if you remember what uh, they had replied to Jesus himself when he'd come to them, he said, why are you so sad? And they said, well, this Jesus, uh, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. In other words, that hope is over. It's a past tense hope. We had hoped. They no longer were hoping that. Because 
a dead Messiah is no Messiah. And what overcomes Thomas's doubt is a realization that Jesus is who he has said he is. All the way back in John chapter 2, verse 22, we were told that, so when he was raised from, his dead, from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus has been teaching them throughout his ministry that he must die, he must suffer and die at the hands of the Jews and be raised again. But the disciples could never understand this because for them, messiahs don't die. The one who comes to deliver doesn't seem to fail by being killed by the very ones who he's supposed to deliver the people from. But this is something that Jesus taught throughout his ministry. In John 10, 17 and 18, I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. And so when Thomas sees that this is truly Jesus, what we see is the doubt falling away. The coin has dropped. What we have in Thomas's declaration is the first clear recognition by the disciples that Jesus is God himself. And this declaration by Thomas is an amazing declaration. You know, we've seen before Peter saying things like, we know you're sent from God. You have the words of life. You are the son of the living God. But in a way, these could all be messianic type of titles. But here, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. This is a clear declaration that Thomas recognizes that Jesus is no one but God himself come in the flesh. This is such a clear declaration of the deity of Christ that for those religions and cults that deny the deity of Christ, this is a declaration that is very difficult for them to explain away. One explanation by one of the Jehovah's Witnesses is that when Thomas sees Jesus, he is so shocked that he says, my Lord, my God, which on the face of it is a rather ridiculous explanation for this passage. But think about what this means for a monotheistic Jew. There's no God but one. And when Thomas says this, what he is declaring is exactly that for which the Jews have been wanting to kill Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. When he says things like, before Abraham was, I am. These are the kind of statements that lead the Jews to want to kill Jesus. But now these same words are coming from this disciple who just a bit before was saying, unless I put my hand in the holes in his hand, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. But confronted with this reality, the reality of a risen 
Messiah, Thomas makes this declaration, my Lord and my God. And in response to that, Jesus again makes a declaration, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When we look at this, Jesus is not saying that, Thomas, you needed evidence. Much better would it be for those who do not have evidence but still believe. That's very clear if you look at the very next verse. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John gives us this account. He gives us the testimony of the disciples because it is this testimony that is the foundation and the strength for God's people all over this world to go out, many of them laying their lives on the line in order to bear testimony to Christ. And it is this word in which God gives us the confidence, confidence to overcome fear of earthly authorities, confidence to know that God himself stands behind what we do. And I want to help us see this morning that this is indeed the purpose that John gives us, as he says here in verses 30 and 31, that we are to have this scripture as the foundation for overcoming fear of this world, for knowing that Jesus is God, for understanding that we have authority to go out into the world and to accomplish all that God has designed. What is the vision for this church? Part of the vision for the church of Christ, as we see in a passage like this, is that the church is to be a community of people who have a profound commitment, devotion, and growing understanding of the Word of God. Think of what one of the first efforts of missionaries is they go into a culture. What is the first thing that they'll do? Learn the language, learn the culture, and then put the Bible into the language of the people. Because it is in the Word of God that we receive this power, this confidence, this authority to go out with the gospel. And we see the place of Scripture and knowing the Scripture throughout the history of the church, that it is the key to authority and power. Because when the earthly authority of the church try to use and establish that authority, as we saw in the Roman Catholic Church, for themselves, what did they do? What they did was they restricted access to the Word of God. 
because in a sense, it just feels like if the pastor is saying something, and, and I think the, the Bible means something different, well, you know, of, of course he's right. And that's not the reason why Irene and I have come to PCC. Because God establishes the church in a profoundly egalitarian way, in a way that no other organization in this world is established. Because anyone with the Word of God has the same power and authority as anyone else. Because the Bible is the final authority of the church. And so, with that kind of authority, what do you see? You see a monk standing up against the entire church and nailing his 95 theses to a church door. Because this is the authority of God. And the same authority of God that empowered Martin Luther to stand up against all the authorities of his day is with us today. And I want to give you one example of how it does this for us. Uh, one of the things we have in our culture is the kind of thought and the idea that Christians are foolish. And of course, we don't want to be considered ignorant and foolish. And so this power that's wielded against us today is this fear of being considered an idiot. And here we had, I've found, and you can find articles like this all over the place, fairly typical ar article where the author questions whether Jesus really rose from the dead. And it's entitled, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? And when you notes uh, his conclusion, I'll read for you here, is, for the most part, his, that is Jesus, his appearances retain a dreamlike quality, suggesting that Jesus didn't want anyone to assume that what had happened to him occurred in ordinary time and space. He did not, like Lazarus, simply get up and walk from the burial crypt and resume life on the street. This is the resurrection, not the great resuscitation. But Christian thinking is resurrection thinking. It's about rebirth or reawakening in many forms about spiritual and moral transformation. And this is the really good news of Easter. Things like this. You know, how can Christians be so foolish as to believe in a man who died and rose again? Well, with the scripture, we're empowered in certain ways as we learn how to read and learn and understand the scripture. And it is for that very reason that we are doing, for example, the Matthew training that we're doing in our church. And I encourage all of you to come to that. Because when someone says something like this, and this person who wrote this article is a teacher at Middlebury College. He's an author who published Jesus, the Human Face of God, a biography of Jesus. And what he's basically saying is Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. What, 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 what really is the heart of Christianity, what's really meant to be conveyed through the Bible, is this idea of renewal, spiritual transformation, moral transformation. That's really the message of the Bible. Well, how do we bring the authority and the power of the Word of God into our lives? Well, first of all, we cannot separate God from His Word. 
And how do we do that? Well, one way to do that is just say, well, you know, everyone has their own interpretation of the Bible. You have your interpretation, I have my interpretation, and that's fine. And that's complete crap, right? Because when you do that, it's not God speaking through his word anymore. And someone who is a teacher of literature ought to know that. And so as we begin to understand the word of God, we can respond to garbage like this. Look at the passage we just read today. Here are my hands. Here is my side. Put your hand. In what genre is that not meant to convey Jesus really rose from the dead? So I'm sorry, Jay Perini. You're full of it. Understand the power and the authority of the Word of God, and that includes knowing how to read God's Word. When we see what God's Word is meant to convey. So first of all, these attacks on Christianity. This guy's saying, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Okay, we can, we can say that the Bible really is trying to show that Jesus really rose from the dead. But then we have John's word. This is written so that you might believe. And how do we know that what testimony in here is true? When we look at history, how do we know, or in a courtroom, how do we know what kind of testimonies are true? Well, here we have a picture of these 12 disciples. And they are afraid and cowering in a room. And you remember the fear that held them in that room. But what is about to happen? Jesus is going to send these disciples out, these apostles, which will include the Apostle Paul. And what are each of these people going to do? They're going to go out, and they're going to be cut down one by one. And we have the records, historical records of the early church showing that these men died martyrs' deaths. Every single one of these disciples of Jesus, with the exception of the Apostle John, who was banished to the island of Patmos, and then adding to that the Apostle Paul, who had been a Pharisee, living in the upper crust of society, throwing all of their lives away in order to establish a myth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? When you think about the testimony of Scripture, how God established the truth claims of His Word, these kind of things make zero sense. And so when we read these different attacks upon Christianity, when you read the different doubts that people have over the faith that you and I possess. There are answers in this word. There's a firm foundation laid for our faith by this word. And this is the same power that transformed those apostles and turned them from people who are afraid of these earthly authorities to people who are willing to go out and realize that they were going to be cut down one by one. 
because they had a reality revealed to them that transformed the way they lived. One of the favorite movies that uh, Irene and I have seen, we haven't seen many of them, so you know, if you guys see something good and you would let us know about it, we're looking for ones that are thoughtful, that uh, don't contain much uh, or any uh, immoral uh, depictions of sex or things like that. But one of the ones that we saw a while ago was Inception. And I don't know how many of you have seen that. I'm going to ruin the movie for any of you who haven't. (laughs) But there's this man who is basically able to go into people's minds and either extract information or, as the plot of the movie, to place an idea, to incept an idea into the mind of a person. And at the end of the movie, one of the things that, the way the movie concludes is ambiguous. Because uh, these kind of like uh, mind travelers, one of the things they always carry with them is this thing called a totem. And the totem helps them to know whether they're in actual reality or not. Because the world, within the world, the world has to follow physical laws. And so one of the characters has this top that he spins. And if it continues spinning and goes on spinning, then he knows he's not in the real world. But at the end of the movie, throughout the movie, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get back to his family. Uh, He's, uh, I I won't go too much into the plot, but he's unable to return to his family. But if he accomplishes a certain mission, then the way will be cleared for him to return to his family. And so in the last scene of the movie, he goes back to the home where his family is. And he takes out this top and he spins it. But then he catches a glimpse of his children. And he leaves the top and he goes out to his children. And it's ambiguous because the movie ends with a focused shot on that top spinning. And there's a suggestion that maybe it's wobbly. but We don't know. And then there's a fade to black. And that's the way in which I would say we can see a difference between the way this world works and how God is striving to move his people. Because what the world has to say is in the end, what's important is he's back with his children. And whether that's in reality or in his mind, he no longer cares. And so we don't know, is he back in reality or not? But what the Christian faith teaches is that there is a greater reality. And we have to know. And the reason that things matter is because there really is forgiveness or there really is judgment. There really is eternal life or there is eternal death. But one of the other things that happens in this movie is that idea of inception. And so what the reason that he's unable to go back to his family is his wife has killed himself herself and implicated him as the murderer. And the reason she does that is because he placed an idea in her mind and she couldn't get rid of it that this world wasn't real and that she had to kill herself in order to get back to the real world. And once that idea took hold in her mind, it drove all her actions. And this is the power of the gospel. But it's not in a fantasy. It's not in something that is unreal. It is something that by reason and evidence we come to a conclusion of that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh 
crucified to pay for sins and raised again on the third day. And what needs to happen in each one of us is that this idea takes root in our minds and our hearts. And it becomes something we just can't let go of. And it begins to drive all our actions. So that in the end, our careers, our lives don't matter. But here's the idea that really counts. Here's the world that we really have to get back to. And here's the message that we have to proclaim to the world. And the scripture has the power of God to do that. To help you understand the nature of this idea. To help you understand the dimensions of this. And to bring you into the reality that God exists, that forgiveness exists, and that he has commissioned you and I to be the bearers of his gospel. And so, as we close today, I would leave you with the words of Christ that you and I, with the Holy Spirit, we are commissioned to be the message of Christ, the bearers of the gospel, that all the world might come to know him, honor him, and worship him as God. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the testimony of Scripture that John gives us this truth that it might establish us in our faith and that we who believe, it's not that we believe simply for no reason, but we believe on the basis of testimony. We believe on the basis of evidence. And we pray, Lord, as we come to understand the gospel, that it might take hold of our lives, that we would begin to live transformed lives, where this message of the gospel transforms how we live, transforms our careers, transforms our families, so that we might be part of the fulfillment of the commission which you gave 12 fearful men who transformed the world. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.